Hello, and welcome back for another week of Growing With My Fellow Growers. I'm your host, Jack Greenstall, joined, as always, by an amazing panel. First, I'm going to pass it over to Spartan Grown. Welcome. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, everybody. I'm Spartan Grown. You can find me on Instagram at Spartan Grown, all one word, no spaces. Um, and then if you don't do the Instagram, you can get a hold of me just as an email, spartangrown at gmail.com, and I'll try to help you with any of your questions. I can help you with both uh, synthetic or organic growing. Happy to have you back and happy to be back on this channel. Last week, we were over on Let's Be Buds for the last prisoner project, uh, you know, fundraising. Next up, Dr. MJ. On that, just for everybody that uh, was watching and is interested, that we raised, we're still certifying all the numbers, but what we have certified so far is we've at least $3,000 going to the last prisoner project, but it's probably going to go up because there's some, some that fell through the cracks where it wasn't put in just exactly correct so we're working with the last prisoner project people to get everything certified right but uh, looks like we're at least three thousand that number's only going to go up that's awesome well really thankful for everyone in the community who donated and for all those who wrote letters as well a uh, really awesome project and for anybody who listens to the podcast if you did miss us you can go check out let's be buds youtube channel i said that i was going to clip it i thought i misunderstood i thought we might be doing it from zoom and uploading it to their youtube channel but it was a stream yard link that went uh to one big video so i wasn't able to um cut it and honestly i wanted to drive traffic over to their channel and get people to watch it on the youtube to support so um that's where you can find it on let's be buds youtube channel for the podcast listeners out there i know it's a little bit of a bigger ask but it's just one week out of our year that we uh did this so next up we've got dr mj yeah, it was a, a fun week last week, and I hope that, you know, everybody that's back here on this channel, if you missed it last week, go check it out. It was it was fun. We covered some interesting material, and of course, it's great to hear, you know, we were able to, to raise some money for the Last Prisoner Project. So I am Dr. MJ Coco from CocoForCannabis.com, and I'm excited to be back on our regular channel, and I'm hopeful I'll get to stick around for our full show today. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Happy to have you back. And uh, next up, we've got Matthew Gates. Hey, everyone. This is Matthew Gates. I am an integrated pest management specialist. Most of you already know that, but if you're new, this is what I do. You can find information about that on my YouTube channel, Zentinel, which I'm commenting on. And today, I actually brought and went right through a paper about uh, cannabis foliar and uh, well, mostly uh, flower structure and how that influences cannabinoid content, terpene and other secondary metabolite growth and development. So I'm very excited to go over that with all of you today. Definitely looking forward to getting into that in a little bit. Next up, we've got the American one. Hello, Jack Panel and everyone in chat. I am the American one on YouTube and the American one underscore with underscore teens on the IG. Uh, yeah, if you guys ever want to get in touch with me, hit the DMs on the IG. And uh, it's always good to be here. Shout out to uh, Uncle Rick and the crew over there. Let's be buds and uh, the last prisoner project. I think that that's a great cause to uh, to put some uh, money and effort in. And if not, at least find yourself someone you could uh, write a letter to and, uh, <clears throat> you know, do something. And uh, yeah, so I'm looking forward to tonight. Glad to be here. And uh, yeah, that's about it. We're happy to have you back. And I just wanted to say that uh, on Let's Be Buds YouTube channel, that's Buds with a Z. And um, in the video, you can go watch. It's under the chatathon. In the comments, I think it might have been Weedner DWC, but some, somebody wrote a little description 
where they have all the timestamps. So if you just want to jump to growing with my fellow growers, it's at seven hours and one minute. And you can just click on the little blue timestamp and it'll jump right to it because it's a almost 12 hour long video. So if you want to watch specific segments, you can go through and uh, check out that timestamp to figure out where the show starts. But with that said, I wanted to make sure to remind everyone to click on over to the live chat so you can see all the comments and engage with the uh, amazing community we've got here tonight. And I'm going to pass it back to Matthew Gates to introduce this uh, paper to us for tonight. Yeah, so I'm going to share the screen here now, but um, the name of the article is called Shape Matters, Plant Architecture Affects Chemical Uniformity in Large Size Medical Cannabis Plants. And let me do that here. Alrighty. Yeah, you can see the title here. We have the authors here. And I've highlighted a bunch of sections because I knew that, uh, you know, it could be helpful. Um, if you're curious about the color coded, green is like the really important parts and other colors are usually there, like dark uh, gray for like um, other sections. So I'm not gonna use the whole abstract, but these few sections I will. Um, just right here says, uh, since plant organs sense their environment locally, uh, gradients of microclimates in the plant shoot, so the growing sort of section of the plant, uh, may induce spatial variability in the physiological state of the plant tissue and hence secondary metabolism. So these are compounds like cannabinoids and other secondary metabolites. Uh, I already said that that's not a great way to define, but like terpenes and um, you know, flavonoids and all these other sort of aromatics that we really care about in the cannabis plant. Therefore, plant architecture, which affects microclimate in the shoot, may considerably affect the uniformity of cannabinoids in the cannabis sativa plant. They go on at the bottom here to say that the results in their study revealed that low cannabinoid concentrations in the flowers, the inflorescence, at the bottom of the plants correlate with low light penetration and that increasing light penetration by defoliation or the removal of bottom branches and leaves increases cannabinoid concentrations locally and thereby through spatial uniformity. They say that shoot architectural modulation, so changing how the shoot is structured, how the, the floral architecture is structured can be utilized to increase cannabinoid standardization in large cannabis plants. Emphasis on large here. Uh, they make a point later on about how size of your plant really does have a major effect on how hormones and other things sort of transfer through the plant. Obviously, it's a shorter distance if this plant is smaller. And they also say here that the, there's an outcome of exogenous, which means sort of external to the plant, and endogenous factors, which are sort of internal to the plant. I know we've talked on the on the Chief Homegrow podcast before that um, it was sort of controversial, the idea that the, um, that the light hitting the leaves very much close to the so-called sugar leaves to the flower um, would sort of increase uh, volatile and secondary metabolite production because uh, from a photosynthetic perspective, but um, they don't uh, seem to support that here. But there's a few things about cannabis cultivation that they don't quite support yet uh, or that they uh, kind of criticize here um Matthew, on that part, were they talking about the cannabinoids uh, i know they're saying that it was basically more standardized so more even across the different parts of the plant i suppose but did it increase cannabinoids or decrease cannabinoids that didn't 
I didn't really get that from that statement. It just said that it leveled out cannabinoids across the, or am I misunderstanding? They increased. They did increase, although they do make a point, and I think I even highlighted it here in the in the paper. Um, it might even be on the page right here that uh, um, there are factors related to the increase of cannabinoids and other secondary metabolites, but specifically cannabinoids here. But also, um, you know, there's a there's an effect on yield. And in fact, in the, in the thesis of this paper, by which I mean the very end, like the last paragraph, um, they mentioned yeah. that they mentioned that um, you got to be careful and that yield biomass is kind of a thing that maybe based on the results in, the, in this particular paper that you actually want to focus on biomass rather than increasing the cannabinoid concentration, you know, in the tissue itself. If, if that, so if that makes questions. sense. You know, I yeah. think there is a statement at the end concerning the potency and how it's uh, might. I, we can I just go, go look at it. Yeah. I have it right here. So there's no reason. I, I wanted to put an emphasis and just put a line under your point about it being big plants. They're talking two and a half meter tall on average exactly. plants, which is eight foot tall plants. Yes. Um, <laughs> these are large plants. This is not oh, yeah, sort of, okay. you know, your tent grown cannabis at this point. Exactly right. And they also mentioned that um, they also make a point. If you're, if anyone's curious, you should definitely check out this uh, paper. And if you have trouble accessing it, you know, let reach out to me on Xenthanol or on my Instagram. Um, you know, we can check it out together. But I'm sorry uh, yeah. I didn't have a chance to go through it sort of before, but I'm already wondering how they controlled for, for some other things based on some of the stuff that you're talking about now. Like, were did all the plants have the same number of budding sites and what was the differences in yield? Because um, certainly could, if you if you lower the number of budding sites, you're going to improve the quality of the flowers and the budding sites that remain no matter where they are on the plant. They actually, um, they don't actually come to the same conclusion there about about that particularly with the budding size we can go over that okay um, yeah and I, especially I, with this the, is why i said i didn't do my homework i needed to do my homework Matthew. <laughs> i had yeah, the same thought on. actually that um that that would be the case and it seems like it might be a little bit more complicated than that at least in this one study and again i also want to say for anyone who's looking at this and thinking that they have to change their entire paradigm because of this one paper you don't necessarily have to do that you know this is just one paper um, and I, I think it's really great that you're here, Dr. Coco, because um, I did have a little bit of trouble with some of the, um, uh, you know, the methods and materials. Uh, you know, I'm not, uh, it's been a long time since I did like statistics and biostats and two oh key boy. analyses and all that stuff. So <laughs> oh um, can we do something for the chat? Because looking at a paragraph with highlighting and as much as talking about it is interesting what really captivated me at least when i saw this paper initially was the photos of the plants side by side and then talking about the conditions and showing them exactly what we're actually talking about well it doesn't actually do what you're saying but we can look at the pictures well it, pictures it describes like the, the conditions like at least we can see the control um because somebody i think doc was mentioning what was their control they actually have a control plant right. at least from what i understood and maybe i didn't read it clearly enough but in the images right here, you've got the far left, it says control, defoliation, BBLR plus defoliation, BBLR, uh, second branch removal, first branch removal, single prune and double prune. Um, hey, which, I'll put a link in the chat to the uh, paper so anybody could open it up if they want. Yeah, and ask questions in the chat if you have questions. Like for example, um, this is BBLR is bottom branch leaf removal plus, and then here plus defoliation, for example. 
Then you have just affiliation and just bottom branch leaf removal, for example. You have second degree branch. Yes. Sorry, I was going to ask, you can continue, but I was going to say, did they define what prune means? Like it's a single prune and double prune. Uh, Yeah, they do go into detail on that. Um, I could try to find that for you. I don't understand what this is showing us. Are these individual plants or just sample size of one for each type? That's the whole plant after the training had been done. That's the final plant. Is that that we're looking at there and that? Yeah, these are the total plants, I think, after the training. I'm pretty sure there's more than just one replicate. I'm so surprised just between the two, between the control and defoliation. There's not even a huge difference. Uh, yeah, because I think these are so, so right. What does the caption say? Effective architecture manipulation treatments on visual appearance of medical cannabis plants. Again, okay, maturation. But is it the whole plant? It doesn't even look like. That's the whole plant. It is. It really the, is, isn't it? The like first, first branch removal looks plant. crazy. Yeah, it's the whole yeah. plant. And, and just to put it in context, these are, these are supposed to be two and a half meter tall. Yeah, I don't have to look at that. I didn't realize. It doesn't look. It does, that's why I'm saying it doesn't really look yeah. like that. Like it could be forced perspective. Removal plant, I don't think looks two and a half meters tall. Like this is a sample off of the plant. Must be. That yeah, that's like what I'm thinking. Is that they some aren't. pictures are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The BBLR looks like it could be. I mean, there's no reference in the background. That could be an eight foot tall plant with long ass legs. Yeah, the, the, the first branch removal one can't be. Oh yeah, I'm not saying right. that one's tall. That looks like maybe two or three feet tall. But yeah. the defoliation and BBLRs look like they could be six, eight feet. So, all right. So, so like I had a plan moving forward, but how do you guys want to go about it? Do you want me to find some answers no, to your questions to before we go? I apologize. For, I just wanted to uh, give some people some visual re- representation yeah. because I feel like to uh, preface. You had some good questions. One of them was how many, what was it? How Bud many sites? Bud sites. That's actually a really good one that I don't, I read practically the whole thing. Um, I just skim a little bit over the materials and methods because I was hoping we could go over that a little bit with Dr. Coco. But um, I don't think that they, I mean, I could I could try to find that information, but see, I just don't want to like be fishing through it. And, like, yeah, kind of see, momentum, I you see what I'm saying? Take, I, I was going to say, certainly they define pruning. There's probably more controls that you'd have to sort of run against um, just as opposed to like, I don't know if that's, just an untrained plant or something like that as being the control. But if you want to draw specific causation conclusions, and I will just say, you know, they're, they're not necessarily arguing that they're arguing a correlation. Um, and in order to move from sort of a, a correlated relationship, which is fairly easy to show to a causation relationship, um, you'd have to run a whole lot of sort of more carefully constructed controls to make sure that it wasn't other variables that were sort of leading to the, the outcomes that you saw. So anyway, one, let's get back to one, it, Matthew. One important point, actually, since you bring that up, one important point that we will go over is that they're very careful to mention that there's kind of a, there's like a genetic locus. Um, oh, I'm so sorry. That's the other paper. That's this paper. If we even get to it, if anyone's interested in this, it's a really great paper. Sorry. They weren't trying, we were trying to find the exact genes in this one. Great paper. If you're curious about autoflower and, and uh, uh, photo periods, go to period sensitivity, but um, okay. So, all right. All right. Um, 
Well, yeah, let's go to the bottom because that's where their conclusions are. We'll start with the conclusions and work backwards. Um, <laughs> so they say here that uh, in the conclusions, cultivation of large plants enables growers to increase cannabis yield, but information has been missing on the properties and chemical uniformity of such yield. Since effects of plant size and plant architecture on the microclimate in the shoot are intertwined, we focused on the interrelations between architectural manipulation, treatments, and spatial standardization of the cannabinoid profile. The results revealed that pruning the plants twice during cultivation was the optimal practice for increasing yield in this paper, and other treatments decreased or did not affect yield quality. And then down here, if you're curious, they have um, at the the changes to the chemical profile were induced by the treatments, and they generally followed a similar pattern of defoliation being equal to bottom branch leaf removal plus defoliation, which was greater than double prune, which was greater than the control, which was equal to single prune, which was greater than bottom branch leaf removal, which was equal to two second degree branch removal, which is greater than one first degree branch removal. Um, so yeah, that's how they kind of, um, that's kind of how they organize them. I think from, uh, from most to least change, although, um, I would like to go into some of those, uh, figures to make sure I'm right about that. They say that the yeah. effects of, yes. I was just going to say, so that basically means a, a double top, uh, lollipop is, is the best for uniform and yield, right? Again, I just want to point out if you're growing eight foot tall plants, yeah. like yeah. Well, I, I, I really caution against paper. taking these findings directly into your gardens unless you're growing these giant plants. Because I don't think it's particularly surprising that you know doing some defoliation and allowing light to get through a plant would improve the consistency of the plant if it's like an eight foot tall plant. Um, yeah, they they caution that uh, shorter plants, smaller plants in general. Yeah. Um, are, are way, you know, way easier to control all of these factors. Um, right. Kind of, kind of in the introduction. Yeah. Okay. So that's what I'm just tripping that. over this. I'm like, well, yeah, it's like an eight foot tall plant. Like it's going to be dark down there if you're <laughs> just letting it like grow up like a bush. So anyways, keep that in mind. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I hundred percent. It's really important to, um, yeah, to, to keep that context in mind. They say of these ginormous plants that the effects of these chemical changes on overall cannabinoid production per plant were secondary to effects of floral yield biomass, which is what we were talking about with Tao earlier. Therefore, architecture manipulation can be utilized to increase yield biomass and standardization. In several sections of this paper, for those who are curious to learn more and download it and read it, uh, they give many other plant examples where cultivators do this for their crops in order to have similar changes that you would want in cannabis, like increased uh, yield biomass and also, um, you know, particular metabolite uh, increases as well. Um, so it's not like it's a, you know, it's not like it's only cannabis people who do this and certainly a very um, universal thing for a lot of, a lot of crops. Uh, low light availability at the bottom of this, again, very large plant is a powerful inducer for reduction of spatial chemical standardization. So across these bud sites, um, you know, their standardization does get very uh, asymmetric. It very changes a lot, quite a bit from the top to the bottom. The increased yield achieved by growing large plants comes at the cost of low chemical uniformity in the plant. 
These results are instrumental for directing development of optimized cultivation protocols for the cannabis industry for ensuring high quality medical products for patients. But um, yeah, like again, this might not be relevant to you in particular if you're growing in a home grow setting. Well, it um, seems to be just basically saying it would be easier to grow smaller plants. I mean, that, that seems to be oh, the yeah. conclusion there, right? Well, and I, I think that's actually the biggest conclusion, really. Let me, uh, let me, let me say this. So there's a, there's a, there's a YouTube uh, post, uh, his name is Edward Gigi, and he basically preaches a two prune and lollipop. If the lower branches are tall enough, push them up to the middle so they could get the light. And if they're tall and high enough, you know, they'll be part of the canopy. But his main thing, and I, you know, is to catch all of the light because that is like would be the sin if you're paying for the light and the leaves aren't catching it. So I think this can be instituted into a smaller plant and be successful in two different ways. First, you you have an even canopy if you do it from seed and all the plants are similar and you'll be able to capture all the light. So I don't want to go saying like it's totally a useless if you only if you have three-foot, four-foot plant. So, yeah. I'm not trying to say it's totally useless, but, you know, in a 16-inch or two-foot-tall plant or three-foot-tall plant, there's going to be a lot less of a difference between the the top and the bottom of the plant. So, basically, what what this research is showing is, like, if you grow an eight-foot-tall plant and you sample the buds in the interior at the bottom of that plant versus the buds at the, you know, tops and the edges of the colas, um, you're going to see a big difference in the quality there. And basically what they said that if you increase the, you know, light penetration down to those, I, I don't even like using the term light penetration like that, but if you remove some plant matter to let that area be less shaded, the quality of the buds in that area is going to be higher and it's going to be more equivalent to the the quality of the buds at the tops at the colas. So it decreases right. the the variability in your overall harvest, but it also decreases your yield. Um, I, just and wanna... I think that that's basically true in kind of any of these situations. And my other thought about this is, is it, should we let light through to the bottom or should we just remove the excessive bottom bide sites that aren't going to develop well? I, I mean, I kind of think, and Hempuchichi is a, a good friend of mine. Um, I, I kind of think that, that their sort of strategy, you know, as is mine, is to, to you know, fully fill in the canopy to harvest the, the right. photons. Yeah. Not to sort of open up right. holes in it, to allow the light through to sort of get to lower bud sites to bring up their quality to more equivalent to that of the, the canopy, which seems to be... Right, that makes sense which seems to be what this study is sort of suggesting. Like it, it comes at me, like there's a premise that, you know, large plants, it seems to be the premise was the, the study is that large plants increase the yield, um, but they have low uniformity and that we can increase the uniformity in these large plants by, you know, doing these kinds of training um, specifically defoliation was shown to sort of have the best impact on increasing uniformity. That means that, you know, the, the buds at the bottom were developing more similarly to the buds at the top, but it's not necessarily going to be the strategy I would argue, 
um, if you hadn't already painted yourself into that corner, like we've got to grow big buds and we want the buds at the bottom to be the, the same as the buds at the top. I would have trimmed off all the buds at the bottom if I was growing a big plant like that. Um, but my real solution would have been I'd, I'd grow a lot of little plants instead. I was going to say, at a commercial scale, you can grow more plants and grow smaller ones, which makes right. labor more simple on the workers in a lot of cases. If you have giant yeah. plants, it can be. <laughs> yeah. No, there's, there's a, sort of, it's a double-edged sword. But... It is a double-edged sword. You are right. Yeah. It's can I just mention one thing now. that I find is extremely important about this particular paper, looking at the methods, is that the only cultivar that was examined was topaz, which is a type 3 which is a high CBD, 8 to 16%, and low THC, less than 1%. Yeah, so, maybe we're not looking at the same paper, because I have, mine says two medical cannabis cultivars, Himalayan and Fuji. But it's the title. Is the Himalayan, same. Fuji, and what? Himalaya and Fuji are the two strains. Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah, we're used. And it says mine that... Uh, it was grown in a greenhouse with supplemental life vegetative stage in Israel. Is that the this same? This is an Israeli paper. The MDPI correct. link. Here, I'll, I put the link to one. Is, is this the title? The is this YouTube the title? Guy. This is the title. Uh, hold on. I'm looking you know at the plant architecture. I just thought of this. As but, soon as Israel came up in that, in that context, you grow large plants because of plant count. And that's why yeah. oh, commercial growers oh. in the U.S. Oh. actually grow large plants. Yeah. Yeah, and I also want to say that something we talked about earlier. Where is their many, plant count in the U.S.? Hold on. Let for me commercial look. gross. Michigan's got a plant count. Michigan. Oh, that's a good point, yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to say <laughs> yeah. that. I was like, we're canopy here. Oklahoma's canopy. Pretty much every other state I can think of is canopy size. A lot of them are canopy. I agree. And, you know, I'm working with growers in different places. I'm working with a grower in Michigan, and that it changes sort of everything we've set up with our cultivation plan because – of you know the size that the, the plants have to be because sort of they have so many plants in such a size facility and you gotta be able to sort of stretch the plants into that facility instead of sort of fill the facility with plants that's mm -hmm. why you grow big plants and There's that's when I, I think that's probably the context that they're studying in, in israel as well yeah earlier and in fact i think i've even read Israeli research reports where they were looking at only like or not only but they were specifically trying to grow really small plants um, you know, that's the domestication phenotype, right? I mean, that's kind of, for a lot of plants anyways, yes. you want like as much of the, and we've talked about this multiple times on the show, as much of the stuff that you want and as little of the stuff that you don't want. Absolutely and, right. Yeah. The plant put <laughs> all of its energy into that part of the plant that we want to harvest. Yeah. Uh, were you going to say something, Spartan? I was just adding that as ridiculous as Michigan having a plant cup for commercial is there's a push push to reduce the um, plant count too for the commercial the higher end stuff Ridiculous. a lot of the, the multi-tiered stuff they're trying to put pause they're asking for moratoriums on not even allowing people to get any more licenses so there's all kind of crazy talk right now in lansing it's just not effective they need to they need to cap canopy size if they want to have an impact on actual amount of product that makes it to market camping plant count just makes us design grows where we're filling build big buildings with you know fewer and fewer plants and longer veg times well and there has to be a consideration the metric tag on every plant we got to save waste well, let's, let's <laughs> talk about number of licenses too because if you look at Oregon and if you look at Oklahoma they said all right free 
rain. As many licenses as you want. If you come and you pay, we'll give it to you. And guess right. what? They overproduced. Everybody's selling like pounds for like a hundred dollars and a bunch of people are going out of business. And it's, it's a different situation where like in California, there's limited licenses or Florida, there's extremely limited licenses, but there's still a giant open and thriving unregulated market. So it's like, you're kind of damned if you do or damned if you don't, I guess, in that situation. Earlier I referenced it. So I just want to bring this up that, uh, um, in most of these reported studies, and here they're talking about other plants that you try to get essential oils or secondary metabolites from, that the change in biomass was more influential on total secondary metabolites yield than changes in metabolized concentrations. Like Dr. Coca was saying, most likely because the range of changes of secondary metabolite concentrations is smaller than the effects of just getting a lot more or biomass accumulation. So it's suggested that in this context, maximizing inflorescence yield weight should be the first line strategy to be fine-tuned by optimization of cannabinoid concentrations. And again, this is with giant eight-foot plants and perhaps with a, with a plant count. Um, so if you are in that circumstance, for whatever reason, uh, legal or just trying to challenge yourself, um, you know, this is uh, something that they come to. And I just wanted to make sure that this was... Um, yeah. Yeah, so they're basically saying, so, but yeah, but don't do it anyways, right? <laughs> well, in the introduction, kind of, yeah. In the introduction, they go and they say, see if I can find it. Well, well, yeah, I mean, that sentence, the last highlighted sentence, it suggested maximizing yield. Oh, yeah. Know, then Basically, don't defoliate. Um, of the inflorescence, first. I think they meant. What's that? Of the inflorescence, I think they meant. Just the flower, not the biomass. Yeah. Like like flower biomass rather yeah. than... Yeah. yeah. But like as opposed to total biomass, like stem, leaf, everything. Right. But also as opposed to sort of the cannabinoid concentration. Uh, can you expand? Well, go back to the sentence. Maybe I'm reading it wrong. Yeah, no problem. Oh, now I'm looking at stupid YouTube. Hold on. This is going to be... <laughs> Forever, I gotta get back to that. I just want to say here. the paper yeah. I have is the same authors with the same uh, those diagrams, but it's slightly different. So yeah, they have this, different cultures. This sentence, yeah. yeah. So it's saying basically try to maximize your yield of flowers, obviously, right? Before you try to optimize the cannabinoid concentrations, which is what they've been talking about the whole time and sort of oh i see what you mean yeah yeah making it even throughout the plant so they're basically saying so despite everything we've said up to this point you as an operator you should strive to maximize your yield um and then maybe play around the edges fine-tune to sort of do some of the stuff we've been talking about in this article yeah exactly because you know um because of how those sort of things happen, how those metabolites are produced. In fact, they make an interesting point earlier. Uh, this is interesting. For all cannabinoids, higher yields of gram per plant were produced by the double prune compared to all their treatments. But they also mention, you know, I, I th- a lot of the people who watch probably are aware of this sort of thing um, already. But yeah, so like they asked a, a really pertinent question. I'm trying to see if I can find it. Is it here? No, it wasn't here, but I'll just describe it and then maybe I'll find it later. 
But essentially the idea is that um, at least in one of the treatments, they had a whole bunch of the precursor, you know, the CBGA, or I'm pretty sure that was what it was they were talking about. I did see that. No, yeah. Yeah. And so they were saying, well, just because there was an increase of this doesn't mean that you're going to have more cannabinoids. It could be. And they suggested it's possible that the reason why that happened was because the, it was never able to get metabolized. So there's like a buildup, but no finish, essentially. And I think that's just a really important thing to consider with this kind of research is that you can have sort of um, unintuitive like responses, especially if you're like not familiar with how these pathways, you know, sort of uh, uh, action or sort of actualize. Um, and there are still certain mysteries regarding the biosynthesis pathways, uh, but we do know quite a bit about it as well. So I just think that's sort of a, an important informed idea. Like if you were to like, just happen to, for some reason, be able to like test and you see there's all of this sort of, you know, you think, oh, great, all this CBGA, that means I'm going to have tons of XYZ. It doesn't necessarily mean that that's the case. Um, in this, so in just, this study, it, it actually looks like it's saying that's not like it's going to be exactly the opposite of the case because the ones that had the high CBG are showing lower cannabinoid numbers later. Is Yeah, exactly. In this particular case, I think that is the case. And uh, that might actually be... Ah, yeah, was it in here? I just control F CBG and tapped around and oh. <laughs> it kind of was what we were describing. But um, something else I wanted to kind of just make note of in the... Yeah, kind of way that things were run is 111 days and they flowered for 58 days so that also could have some determination on like how things worked out for them versus how many of us might run that might be exactly how long you veg and flower for but i think i personally like to run further than 58 days and flower for a lot of cultivars and that's where a lot of the change happens is those last few weeks of flower uh, the cannabinoid content terpene content things like that I, I believe change rapidly from one week to another from like uh, day 58 to day 64 to day 70 um and just anecdotally harvesting stuff at the different timelines you can sort of see the earlier harvest versus the later harvest the different flavors and highs so i'd be interested to see if they expanded upon the study it looks like they already maybe have uh tau has another study i can't find yeah. the link the link that it's you the same authors broken. let same me authors. say yeah listen it's the same authors but it's a slightly different uh What's but it's a lot of the same conclusions I put the title, it's in the chat, in the Zoom chat, and the link to the actual thing. I'll read it right now. Plant architecture manipulation, increased cannabinoid standardization in drug type medical cannabis. Let me just read one paragraph that's in the study that I brought up. It says, and what Doc was saying, the extent of the treatment induced changes, which was small in the present study, might be attributed to the fact that the plants are all grown to a final height of about one meter. Whereas in the industry, the final range is from 50 centimeters to over three meters. In larger plants, the microclimate, hormonal, physiological, and developmental differences would be bigger and may increase variation across the plant. For example, they say in lavender, variation between locations along the plant, plants and essential oil contents and composition were observed between plants harvested after reaching different heights. And at least 11 variables that were affected by the plant size were detected to affect peak quality. So yeah, bigger plants, it would make a bigger difference. But yeah, I put a link into the one that it's slightly a different study, but it, they do the same um, the same pruning and defoliation. So yeah, I'm sorry, I put the wrong 
Is it a different study or is it just a different article about the same study? No, it's got to be different because two different cultivars are used. Yeah. 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 Can I just ask like really basic, just a real basic question? Um, uh, What's the author's and when was it published? Yeah, it's the same year, same authors, 2021, uh, Danzinger and Bernstein. Oh, well. I'll say you know, this. They reference, they reference a Danzinger and Bernstein right here. Hmm. I wonder if it's plant architecture manipulation increases cannabinoid standardization, drug type it medical is. cannabis. It looks it is. like it is. It is. Yeah. It is. Okay. So and it's, it's not unlikely that they're doing side by side studies. Multiple, multiple they're, studies they're at writing, one time. Or, yeah, it, absolutely. That was if you look at the pictures in mine, it's similar to the pictures in the white. I, that's what I was like. They have different pictures. This is a white background. My study had it in a black background, but they have the exact same labels. Interesting. Yeah. They're, they're standardizing this process in Israel, it seems, or at least within a certain group of researchers that are looking at cannabis. And I think what they're trying to do is a shotgun approach. They, like Doc <laughs> said, there's so many variables. They're kind of trying to get an idea of what might be correlations that are happening now. And if they see something really distinct, like, oh, at BBLR, this is happening. Maybe we'll try that in a more like double blind study or with a higher number of cultivars that aren't just CBD, maybe we'll do THC and uh, some that are a mix of THC and CBD and grow them tall, short and medium sized and do a whole bunch of different indoor, outdoor, uh, all the different variables that you can control. But here, I think they're just trying to get the initial, we're still kind of on the very early days of cannabis research. so. I think what they're trying to do is be efficient with their research and say, well, hey, we've heard of all these different approaches that we see are maybe being applied or that we can apply, that we can describe, you know, the pruning, the double pruning, the branch removal and all these different uh, conditions. So if they can just study at least those things and get an idea of what it might correlate to do, um, it can give them an idea for future research to continue and try and expand upon it further with more specific um, ideas, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what they should do. I, we all just have to be cautious about sort of reading too much into the results. That's all. I agree. And as and in case people are following along visually, this section here kind of goes over those points that I was saying about the sort of CBJ enrichment or it being a possibly a bad thing um, to, to find so much due to these treatments. Now, well, those we green do... sections there, we're actually talking about how the best buds weren't always on the top. I thought that was an interesting point to just sort of raise. Oh, yeah. Let's, uh, well, let's talk about that. Um, this is here, contrary to common belief in the cannabis industry, that consider the cannabinoid concentrations of the primary influence, influence, the cola, to be highest in the plant. We report here that the most treatments, uh, for most treatments, control second-degree branch removal, double prune, and both BBLR treatments. The concentrations of most cannabinoids were higher in locations two and three, which we can go over the spider graph on, than in the apical meristem on location one. Furthermore, in both the control and single prune plants, location four also had higher concentrations in location one. And uh, like Tao mentioned in that paper um, that Danzinger and Bernstein did, that reported as well, as well. that Cannabinoid concentrations in the primary inflorescence were not always the highest in the plant. Cannabinoid yeah. concentrations in the inflorescences are affected by exogenous as well as endogenous or developmental location effects. The difference between treatments in this phenomenon should be evaluated, taking into consideration both these aspects. Yeah. Um, you know what I take that, that to mean? What does that mean? 
that means that the top colas, especially in certain grows, get get zapped by the light more. Be that the that sun, makes sense. or no, be that think... the the lights in your grow tent or wherever else. Um, that would be I an exogenous that... effect to the the development because it's assumed based on endogenous sort of factors within the plant that the cola would be where the best cannabinoids would be. But no, you know, it's I not think just... the phenomenon, Doc, is that that's new growth and the new growth that's coming out of the tip of that bud doesn't have time for those resins and glands to really well not just the tippity tip but that whole top no. cola i mean that's not <laughs> the whole thing. cola okay tip all right the whole you know, I, say, I sell the top and i keep the balls that are are, are surrounding the, the satellite nugs on that i think are the best chunks and i will wow. also say anecdotally different strains for me seem to have um, a uniform on their own and then uh, a, a weakness on the lower buds of certain strains where certain strains it's more uniform all over the, the lowest bud will get you as high as the top yeah. bud but that's just anecdotal with my my head space you know i would agree with that i've said on this show in the past that sometimes i like the shoulder buds more than the top buds and it yeah. could be the light is zapping off some of the terpenes or it could just be a certain you know cultivars produce maybe a little bit better at that region like it's a little bit more shaded from the, you know, whatever it is. And the, they can use the light from the top of that canopy and you know, the plant pushes it down to those lower buds too. So it would make some sense to me that certain plants are going to have better buds, the shoulders. And funny enough, so, when I was Googling the um, article that Tao shared, a cocoa for cannabis.com PDF <laughs> free version of it is the only one that I could find the actual PDF of it. So shout out to the cocoa nice. for cannabis.com. It's a pretty awesome website. Hey, I, I know those guys are myself. cool. They're pretty cool guys. I would say that intu intuitively it kind of makes sense too. Like, um, like if you're, if you're growing, you know, um, aromatics like lavender or something else that's going to be turned to a spice or, yeah. you know, be extracted for their oils. Like it's the reason why people like to harvest, uh, you know, in the, in the dawn or the dusk, you know, it's yeah. the reason why maybe a protected part of the plant might not get like, like you were saying, Dr. Coco, like blasted, you know, with a very deadly laser beam, you know? Yeah, exactly. um, and, and we they also mentioned the cannabinoids can decay. Yeah, and that too, too. They can they can change if they're exposed to a lot of light. And so maybe less light, you know, less of that off gassing and less of that um, uh, sort of splitting, that sort of decaying photoreactivity. And that I was wondering too this whole time, <clears throat> excuse me, um, maybe because we know in other plants that cannabinoids are sometimes a response to a stress. Maybe it has to do with some of the stress of just physically ripping those leaves off or physically removing the bottom branches it might be a, re a reason for a change in cannabinoids too over light or a combination of both together. Who knows? We do know that it kind of changes the um, cytokinins and auxins, right? It yeah. sort of changes Among other things. So, yeah, I mean, it definitely has lots of uh, that, that direct mechano stimulation or, or damage or removal of leaf or yeah, right. branches. Even like the one branch condition was the craziest looking to me where they removed, I think, like every first branch. So it basically just grew straight up and it was like a really yeah. stunted, not healthy looking plant at all. Right. That's what kind of it, stood out a little bit for me is, is like that wasn't considered. And then they just I'm sure light has a lot to do with it, but it seems like from kind of what I didn't read everything, but it seems like what they were going on about mostly was they were attributing most everything to light or light penetration. And I'm thinking, well, there's could be other factors besides light. Yeah. Yeah. There oh, could yeah, be. definitely. I want to, can we see the images again? Because I, that, 
That plant, though, we do that every once in a while. We do a single cola challenge in our grow challenges from time to time and have people cut off every branch and just grow one, one cola. And it doesn't have to be sickly. I mean, there's nothing about that. If you leave the fan leaves, you know, I mean, the plant will be just fine. Um, I, I kind of wondered about that when I, when I saw that. I'm like, that doesn't look... I have a timely reference because we talked about the science of growing cannabis versus the practice. And we really yeah. focused on the practice. And one thing I've noticed, whether it's University of Guelph or these Israeli studies, is sometimes they're just not as good at the practice right. of growing cannabis. They might not be able to keep the plants as healthy. Like this one cola I'm looking at on the Tao article, they are literally just like leaves. There's not even buds on it. And they, they took it 58 days into flower, which it's like, there's like not even a single solid bud set on <laughs> they this did plant. something wrong to that plant. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, or the US has, sometimes has study problems with that as well. Can I suggest something else here? I, I guess the, the single prune, I went, they mean top. When they say prune, they're talking about topping the plant. And I guess the double prune would have been a, a plant that was topped twice. Yeah, yeah, I that's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's how they describe it. Although I'd be, okay. you know, it, it would be a little bit difficult to find the exact wording. I pretty much remember them saying essentially what you just, just said. Pruning. But that, that single prune plant has clearly been topped. I mean, it's got two tops. Yeah, in fact, they mentioned that by pruning it the way that they did, uh, they experienced sort of like a double apical kind of thing. So. Yes. Right. It's right. Funny, exactly. just like yeah, yeah I mean, plant. like, of course. <laughs> That's exactly what happens when you top a plant. So, uh, okay, I'm taking maybe a bigger grain of salt. Well, what do you mean? Why would that be? Because they describe something that happens? No, because I'm starting to wonder about sort of how they're growing these plants and probably about the number of, uh, did they describe the number of plants? Yeah, let's, let's delve into treatments? the technicalities. Let's just, let's just take a look at that. I think it's at the end. We have, the, we also have this, uh, this there was like the, to the message. Does it, groups yeah, of eight there was like, there's the eight conditions and they had like six plants in each one of these eight conditions, I think in a greenhouse. Um, I was reading through it just a little bit ago. I'm looking at Tao's version right now, and it's, again, again. almost comical to see some of the unhealthy plants, regardless of the treatment. But some of them actually look pretty decent. So, I mean, to their yeah. credit. All right. Material growing conditions. Is that what we want? No, down one, I think, is where... Oh, wait, it, oh, it's a clone right, that goes into cocoa, and it's auto-fed. Yeah. 3.2? It starts in rock wool, goes into cocoa. I know that's as far as like the growing conditions. So this part you want. Or you can start above it. Yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, no, just tell me where. I don't actually know because you guys that's, are saying. You're right. You're I'm, right, I'm reading as fast as I can as you're scrolling through this. I don't oh, see it yet. Right. It would be up from this. It should be up from this. You were right in the right okay. spot. But the yeah, first you were in the right the, area. Yeah, start there. Like, um. Okay. Uh, materials and methods. The rooted cuttings were planted in 13 meter How pots. How many rooted plant. cuttings? I'll keep reading that. Uh, so it goes reading? down. Uh, I am reading it. I think okay. as far as I can <laughs> they tell. They just say a like, density of one plant per meter squared. Right, but do they tell you how many square meters they used? I'm pretty sure they only did one plant of each. Wow. I'm looking at photos of them, guys. They do mention six replicates, but how many is in one replicate? Yeah. 
Maybe it says no, it, they would say it here in some point. Yeah. And the fact that they don't, and they're almost sort of avoiding talking about it, because then in the next section, if you scroll to the next paragraph, they're like right, eight yeah, yeah. manipulation treatments were evaluated, um, a non-treated control, one, one plant in each of these. So there was a total of nine plants grown for this study. You could do this yourself at home. <laughs> yeah, you could do this. Some people you can need do a, this multiple a times. Gym or something. Time. These are not small plants, as we've mentioned. So they're still oh, taking up. They're grown in a greenhouse. They had a greenhouse. With, with six yeah. replicates. <laughs> yeah. Six replicates. Yeah, that's correct. So, uh -oh. so that's like six times that, right? Six that times nine is. Yeah. Uh, okay, so six. Four, right? Yeah, so sample size was six then. Sorry. But still, I mean, under a hundred plants is uh, yeah. it's tough to make, like you were saying earlier, Doc. Even just generally, kind of uh, diving into the uh, not authenticity, but I guess legitimacy of the, the science as far as what you can extract from it. Yeah. Um, there's definitely going to be some more questions that need to be asked and more studies that need to be done. And because... there's there's reasons to do a study like this. Like I think it's interesting. I think the fact that you you stretch out the size of the plant to like an extreme because you want to see sort of you'll see relationships there that you might not have seen as easily on smaller plants. Um, and then you can play around with them and, and you can see some things like, you know, does the density of light hitting this interior bud site affect the, the final quality of that individual site? Um, so if there's good sort of data on that, we've been operating primarily with theory about that up until this point. So there, there's definitely still things that we could um, take from this. I'd just be cautious about sort of reading to the conclusions and saying like, oh, well, they said that the, the defoliated plant did the best. So I'm going to, you know, strip my plant twice. Yeah, right. Um, definitely has massive preliminary study vibes. I will say it said something interesting closer to the beginning. Um, yeah, like here, the 2.5 meters here. This is the two things they were asking about the study, which is that one, a gradient in light intensity exists along the plants and is accompanied by changes in plant development and contaminant profile, and two, increased light penetration down the plant by manipulation of the plant architecture will increase yield as well as cannabinoid uniformity throughout the plant. So that's, that was the question they're trying yeah. to answer. Let me pose an alternative question though. What if I just said, if you grow big plants with lots of bud sites, the bud sites at the bottom of the plant are going to be less well-developed than the bud sites at the top of the plant. Um, but if you remove a lot of bud sites from the plant, then the bud sites at the bottom will be more similar to the bud sites at the top. And I'm not sure that they controlled for that. Uh, you know, I'm not sure that in this experimental design, they'd be able to answer that question. So that's, you know, once you see a correlation, you have to go back and say, well, what is the actual sort of cause? What, what's driving this? The list of potential causes, because there might be several. Exogenous endogenous, as they say. I was also wondering, um, just as it relates to the study, how do we describe when a plant is topped in horticulture or agriculture generally? Does that have like, is that a practice that's taking place all the time? So when you yeah. chop like the top off of a plant, is that just called pruning? No. In in horticulture, 
It's called topping. I'm that's why I was curious why they were sort of redefining what pruning meant. Because pruning is any deliberate removal of plant growth. It's not just the, the was, I wonder if it's a language thing. Oh it, it yeah. may be a translation Israel issue. Absolutely. Hebrew. Yeah. Or or something. I don't know. There's a lot of English speakers in Israel as well, but you know, I wonder if it's like a they use the term differently, perhaps. They're definitely using that term differently. Um, yeah. So, I, I, yeah, I'd be willing to chalk that up to a, a cultural translation type issue. Now, what do you guys think about this section here? They say that in cannabis folklore, a stretching period of rapid growth is considered to occur at the two weeks following the transition to a short day photo period prior to the termination of plant elongation oh and the formation of inflorescences. In the present study, no such stretching was seen, but rather a continuation of the pre-short day growth rate. This makes me sort of question. There's several things that they're confessing to that make me wonder how good of a grower they are. Especially can I, since can I share the screen for a second to show the Himalayan one too? Because these are even worse looking plants in my opinion. Uh, yes, I want to say this last, the section, the second yeah, part two that. that we can talk yeah. about. The HPS light spectra is poor in the blue light <laughs> fraction, rich and rich in the far red fraction. And both lack of blue light and enrichment in far red are known elicitors of plant elongation. And I've also read that as well. These results debunk the concept of an endogenous stretching period. This is okay. I can I go off well, on this for just a second because they're they're misunderstanding. This it, is exactly yeah. why I don't like calling yes. it the stretch. It's a bolt, and it's not it the same bolting. as yeah. a far red <laughs> induced stretching or plant elongation. Um, the the flowering maybe they're being bolt overly that technical. Occurs, what's that? So like in, maybe they're being overly technical in order for them to appear to be correct. No, I don't think they got all the variables. And when you top it, it won't stretch. If you top it straight away and throw it into flower, it won't stretch as much. I think they're just not doing the study as good as they should. I think they're misunderstanding some of the variables even. Like when they topped it, did they top every single top site? Because it looks like the second pruning, it was such a bushy plant. But like the single prune was also pretty bushy. So I'd imagine it was more than just a single topping and to get to the structure that they showed. But I could be wrong. And even just how they're describing it makes me wonder like what they're not that our understanding is like perfect, but we have uh, experience with it where we can go back and say like, hey, we understand that you might not want to top right when you flip the flower. You might want to top beforehand, get the structure, let the plant kind of recover from some of that stress before you throw it into flower. So that way, when it does go to the short day period, as they're describing it, uh, it will have the chance to do a successful bolt because we want, like Doc right. has described in the past, we want that bolt. We want to yeah. use that for productivity to fill out our space so we can veg a shorter time and we can get a bigger yield essentially with less energy input yep. to the And how the plants bolt the most? If the plant is thriving in late veg and it isn't stressed out by the flip, when it enters the bolt, you, it'll take off. And the fact that they failed to recognize a stretch, I mean, so are we supposed to be like, Oh, okay, but I guess that doesn't exist. Like they debunked I, it. I there think, must be I no stretch. That's not how I interpreted it, actually. And I wonder, I wonder if it could be that, like I said, I don't know the mentality going into this. In fact, let me just uh, let me just do a little peekaboo here. The tail. No, let um, me finish reading that. Beyond the part that you highlighted there, I'm sorry, because it's like they're they're coming up with an explanation for why that. Why we yeah, all believe in the, the stretch? Right I mean, I got yeah, time lapses I can show you. It was making an assertion, That's I think, and that was talk. one of the more bold claims that I've actually seen them make in, in this 
paper with with little, I guess, evidence other than what they kind of are speculating right. based so on their says, observation. It's possible that this tale originates from indoor growers that conventionally change the cultivation. Wait, you scrolled past what I was reading. Oh, I, oh, I see this part here. Yeah. Okay, stop. Um, <laughs> Um, it, it's possible that this tale originates from indoor growers that conventionally change the cultivation light source from metal halide to high pressure sodium at the onset of the short photo period. And he's saying that that's going to increase the amount of far red and that therefore they enter, they, they do some, some stretch. This is decidedly not what happens yeah, to cannabis plants. Laughable. Um, after we flipped them to flower, they take about five to seven days usually to fully flip. And then they go through a bolt where they'll grow. If you keep your plants happy, they'll grow faster than you've ever seen a canvas plant grow before. And yeah, I, 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 I mean, this, this conclusion in this paragraph just doesn't pass the basic sniff test. Uh, yeah, so for me, so Three like, four so inch growth. that's why I say the interpretation seems so weird. Cause if you're talking about like an, a special, this sort of special elongation stretching period, like, no, you're right. That doesn't, that isn't from like shading response, you know, uh, yeah. it's bolting. bolting. <laughs> They're not, they're not the same thing, you know? So well, yeah, good, good this job. Is, you, this is they're why ignoring, I saw it the bolt though. Because everybody's the white confused there. by this word stretch. Yeah. Everybody, these people are confused by the word stretch. The, the and, and to their credit, the far red thing, that's actually stretch. The, the thing yes. that we call the stretch is not stretching, it's bolting. So mm -hmm. I mean, to that well, extent, there's cannabis folklore, but it's it's just the sort of what we think words. is happening or something, not not well, and in that environment happen. they describe, it's happening slightly because of that, but it's also happening because of the bolt, because you can see if you just take a three thousand Kelvin or thirty five hundred Kelvin, like a full spectrum white light through veg and then into flower, you never change it at all. And That's you just, what you I do every plant super time. healthy. Yeah, every you, single like time. Doc has time lapses. I've seen his grow tent from the day one of flower to day like 20, where the plants literally go from barely covering the pot to covering the entire grow tent. And yeah. like I've had three or four inches of growth per day with certain uh, cultivars when they're super healthy during the stretch or the bolt, whatever you want to call it. And I think that that's a sign of a good, healthy plant. But they're obviously misconstruing kind of what is happening because they haven't taken into account that there are people using white light that are debunking what they're kind of hypothesizing right. is the cause for this. Because like they're all of our experience, although it's quote anecdotal because we haven't done like thousands of plants and trials or whatever, I don't think that we're all just misinterpreting this. And like your time-lapse examples, it's like, what else would describe right. that to be so consistent over like dozens and dozens of grows every single time? Yeah, I can't believe this was just last year that they made this. I feel like it's a sort of a sort of a phantasm that they were trying to uh, are both articulate that doesn't exist. And also they, you know, like, I feel like they looked through a bunch of social media uh, forum posts about various aspects of cultivation and were like, yeah, and what is that stretching period? I bet that doesn't exist. And it's because it's actually, that's true. It doesn't exist. It's a whole other thing that everyone uh, doesn't say the right name of. Did you want to, I don't think I have anything like there were some, graphs well, this here is, of course this is the science and practice thing guys i mean this yeah. this could be perfectly good science and the way they gather the data and the, the statistical analysis of that data may be maybe perfect 
but that doesn't mean that it, it's good data in the sense that it will actually translate into anything in, in practice. There's a difference between sort of gathering data and growing plants. Um, and so you have to be able to, to know about the practice. And so they're trying to come up with a conclusion. I mean, that's their little like sub-conclusion within the study that basically this thing that we call the stretch doesn't exist. Um, but I don't know, you have to be really careful when you're studying something and publishing to a group of practitioners. And this is a thing in agricultural science. I've seen it a lot amongst agronomists dealing with farmers where the agronomist thinks that they've got, and they're usually like in their twenties or thirties, like right out of grad school. And they think they've got like the whole world figured out and they understand the science and they'll start explaining something to a farmer and the farmer just laughs at them. Like, we can't do that. Like our ox can't yeah. go there or something. I mean, just like some obvious reason that the, the agronomist just, it, it's not part of the practice, you know, like, you know, we can't do that for, for some like totally real legitimate reason that, that happens in practice. So this is one of the real important things that you have to, and, and sort of what I've always meant with the science and practice, like we both talk about the science and we're doing it. Like we're trying to, to live it and experience it. I think that that's what, you know, how doctors and other people talk about like practicing medicine the same way. Well, Definitely. that's so, so important because the scientists, I think sometimes in this case, like I do think Joe P uh, guy has been on Eagle show in the past. Sometimes it's talked about like, he believed that like Europeans look at like people in the U S a certain way and they maybe be like, Hey, we're smarter. We do this or whatever. But I think sometimes the scientists can look down on the people that are like, especially in this case with cannabis, there's the whole stoner stereotype. Yeah. So they might look at cannabis growers and users and say, Hey, what do they actually know? They're describing shit. They're just pulling this out of their ass. Cause there are some it does really debunkable stoner theories that they can, you know, demonstrate. But in, at this point, it seems like they're pretty, early into their cultivation careers as demonstrated by the way that they're describing things and the photos that they're presenting. Uh, if, if anybody posted this on their Instagram, they'd get laughed out of the room in an right. experienced grow setup. So it is just a indication to me that maybe they plate of academic righteousness. Yeah. They're like holding themselves as like, Oh, look, we're, we're higher certainly, or greater than you. I've certainly been on the uh, receiving end of that before. Um, yeah, so strongly opinioned people can search out uh, these folks at the Institute of Soil, Water, and Environmental Sciences if you're really interested <laughs> in, in finding more about this product and project. Uh, you can check out these fellows here. Um, you Maybe know. you guys can send them in. Uh, I like it. Again, I want to come back to the cup. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Spartan. I was just saying, maybe a viewer could send them an email and say, hey, I'm just... Uh... <laughs> lowly uh, American that just practices home gardening as a hobby in my uh, closet, but I at least know what bolting is. You're a you could explain, explain your comment to me about this section here. <laughs> or even yeah, offer a so, suggestion. This is SciComm. This is science Chris communication. Goals. It's so for, super important. I sometimes hear, I, not to like interrupt, but I, I sometimes, I have sometimes been flogged by people um, who get this impression that like that uh if you like if you're somebody who doesn't have a phd for example that you your interpretations of research first of all are inherently wrong they could be wrong but are in this case are inherently wrong and that you can't have like a good input on 
the gathering of information. Whereas there's an entire massive movement in the science in the academic sphere to communicate and 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 to reach out and to get input from people. So I want people to not let that if that's ever happened to you sort of dissuade you from participating. Uh, frustrating as it can be, even for academics themselves. Uh, Dr. Coco, I'm sure could add to that, but. Um, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's something I've experienced, yeah. certainly. Well, yeah, and I, I kind of feel bad for jumping too hard on these guys. I, I appreciate this kind of research. I, I think that you need to be careful of, you know, reading beyond what your study was meant to, to test. Um, and, yeah, you know, there could be some good info. We'll probably see some interesting relationships amongst things, um, and that may warrant, you know, further study. But um, yeah, it's a bit of a cautionary tale there too, in terms of, you know, if you start laying down your, your pet hypotheses for what you think might be happening and you run into somebody that actually like, you know, walks that walk, you might look like a fool. Um, and I think a little bit of that might've happened there too, right? Where they're like, hmm, I wonder why. Oh, I bet it's this. And yeah, it's like a logical theory that sort of, I understand sort of how their mind arrived at the conclusion that they got to there. But like, be careful publishing that kind of stuff because it can make you look a little foolish and undercut some of the other things that may have been really valuable about your And this really underscores my constant barrage of question everything and even if it's a white paper look at all the specifics the methods and the authors and yeah like and if you I don't know something, the white papers are bogus i hate to say it yeah. well if you don't know something about it too don't uh don't just assume that you must be yes. writing interpretation either you got to be self-aware i mean that's what massimo pigluici is always talking about a philosopher i'm a big fan of hey jack can you hit us with the title um yeah, I'll scroll up to it just in one second. This is the paper that Tao was describing. I just wanted to show it off and um, agree kind of with what everyone is saying. Um, but I think before I scroll up to show off the title and the authors, this is sort of what science is and should should be about to some extent. Not that we're actively in labs conducting this type of science, but we do have knowledge and experience about yeah. the plant that if somebody were to send this link to them of this show, maybe they could watch that and listen and have ideas for future research, which I think would benefit everybody moving forward. So I'm with Doc on that, you know, maybe they were a little bit overreaching with some of the claims, but they do have some good information in here that yep. should be used to move forward the science. So this was the paper that Tao shared, plant architecture manipulation increases cannabinoid standardization in drug type medical cannabis by N. Danzinger and N. Bernstein. Is there so, another type of medical cannabis? Yeah, they're the same author, so is there yeah, they like are non-drug type. Is there like a yeah? I think they call they non-drug type. There is so hemp, the original hemp that had yeah. zero point three THC, but it also had like very low CBD as well. The stuff that they was made just grown for about, fiber. They made a point about genealogy, especially in Israel. Gotcha. They made a yeah. They made a part point about genealogy somewhere in the um in the other paper, and so I imagine that that's why they're just trying to. They just don't want to get in trouble and they're just going to say, like these people described it. Uh, they even talk about a purported ruderalis, but then they're like, but this, but these people now say that maybe that doesn't even exist. So they seemed pretty um, right. bemused as well. Right. 
Was that it? Was that all you were showing us, Jack? Just that one part? I just wanted to show the title and kind of follow up. It was the same group of researchers. It's pretty much the same study done with just two different um, cultivars. I highlighted the names. It was Fuji and Tao probably knows the other one. Um, but They called it Himalaya. Himalaya and Fuji were the two cultivars they examined in that one. But so a total of three with those eight conditions were done. So they're trying this. This is like their repertoire. This is like their approach at cannabis in 2021. I'm sure by right now in 2022, they might be doing different types of studies. Uh, we don't have direct insight into their lab. It'd be interesting. Uh, maybe I'll reach out to these researchers and see if one of them will come on the show and talk Share about the this. episode with them. Yeah, so I would say this counts as a form of peer review. Um, <laughs> We have sort of expert practitioners here reviewing their study and, and coming back with, with, you know, our years of experience actually growing this plant. We weren't the yeah, most I organized know. off the top. I wish we had all read it and like known the bullet points. Yeah. But at the end of the day, we did discuss, you know, the inner details of the, the workings of the paper, the design, the results. And I feel like we gave them a pretty fair shake and kind of our thoughts on the process, which I do really enjoy this type of stuff. It's really hard for us to keep up with the chat, at least for myself. I haven't really been talking with the chat too much during these types of discussion because it's like extremely mentally taxing. I just heard that I think if you play a, a game of chess at like a high level, you can burn 2000 calories just playing chess. So like mentally, uh, you know, devoting yourself to something, you can actually really spend a lot of energy, not just uh, mentally, but physically. So it's tough. To, yeah, and you uh, can save a lot of energy if you use an AI. <laughs> there's a whole controversy about that the yes like, the world's best guys to like, uh, fossil fuel energy or some other kind of energy it's just not no longer bioenergy that's true because uh, that's a that's the same thing i thought of with that example i'm like yeah like server farms suck up all that energy just like my, oh my brain gosh. when it's cranking away is like a server farm like sucking up all this energy and then matthew is like or you could have the server farm do it for you <laughs> yes <No. laughs> exactly. it's better we'll see yeah well yeah. Anywho, don't uh, don't cheat, kids. That's what we're trying. That's what I'm trying to say. Surreptitiously, don't cheat. So he he and didn't, he didn't get, he had he, a blood clot. They, they suspected yeah, he had a blood clot. No, that's the AI cheese. that was tweaking. That was like uh, that's one theory. Is that that's because he talk. he performed in person and he beat? Well, it couldn't have been. A, I don't. They didn't strip him and, and do a metal detector. He could have had something on his leg that taps. Like okay. Because there is AIs that say like, okay, even though this move doesn't make sense right now, eight moves ahead, it's going to make a lot of sense and you're going to win the game because of it. And in chess at that really, really, really high level, making those really little moves can uh, be the difference. So, But there are some people that also theorize because he was brought up playing against AIs that are much, much higher level than even this grandmaster who's the best chess player in the world. Maybe this young sort of savant kid, because he's been playing against essentially AI neural nets his whole life. Uh, is starting to play like the AI neural net, not like a top well, grandmaster chess player. But a lot of people are just saying he's a cheater they because all he's been caught cheating in a lot moves, of other tournaments. Right? They all memorize these long opening stretches. The, the difference is that the, the computers can sort of project out so many more moves in advance from any consider from any position. Um, and the humans just sort of limited in how many moves into the future you can foresee yourself and all the possibilities of your partner and how they might react to that and how things would go. Like most chess players can only do that like two or three moves out and that grandmasters can do like 40 moves out or something. But, um, you know, the computers can just run longer computations than that. So I don't think it's just a matter of being able to play against them, but I think this is fascinating. It sounds like several of us are interested in it, but I also hesitate to like talk too much about chess. Oh, this is one more thing is like my brother is a much better chess player than I am, but I play very untraditionally. He's memorized openings. 
he's got a whole bunch of shit down. And like, if we played against a computer, they give you like a score, his rating would be higher than mine. Yeah, but yeah. I beat him pretty consistently because I play really unorthodox. Yeah. And I do some shit that throws him off and it gets him like, there's a thing called like tilt in poker where people get like frustrated or pissed and then they play worse. So Absolutely. There's the human. Yeah. Element. yeah. Playing. I remember playing against my dad when I was a kid and he, he told me, he's like, if you know, I'd be doing a lot better if you knew how to play better than you do. Like, yeah i'm like wait so i'm like beating you because like i'm not better like i'm not doing what you expect me to do in these situations it's like so. you're not coming up with this pre-cookie cutter plan that he's used to yeah. oh if you do this opening i'm going to do this defense and i'll whoop your ass it's like you're just doing whatever the hell makes sense in your mind which yeah, yeah, to yeah. some extent i feel like that's why some of these like humble growers who maybe were like off in the middle of nowhere they got some little special formula and things like worked out really well and they're like they just really the dankest shit even though they don't know anything about the science like you were talking about earlier or maybe they do know some of it now at this point but uh, for a while, it was a lot of just kind of trial and error and and see what works and go off of what they know from other agriculture, whether it's lavender or rosemary or, or whatever they're growing tomatoes. Um, I mean, Clagmus Coot pretty uh, well popularized the Cornell mix, which was just a third aeration, a third compost and a third Canadian sphagnum uh, peat. And he just made the spin on it, use worm castings or vermicompost for your compost portion. But that very simple, low cost, low input, um, was able to successfully grow thousands of people across the can- cannabis community that I follow and interact with. Um, great cannabis at a Humans very low Humans are farmers, cost. man. I mean, we know how to grow plants. And if you dedicate yourself to it, you'll be able to grow plants. I mean, if that's what you're doing every day is like dealing with your plants and growing your plants, you'll, you'll figure it out. Humans have been farming for a really long time, thousands and thousands of years. Um, so, and yeah, I mean, I always think back to like the the peasant farmers that I've worked with, I've had like almost no formal education. Um, but damn, they really know how to grow plants and they do better when they'd get into these arguments or when an agronomist, like I was talking about, would tell them to do something. And, you know, I could tell that the the farmers didn't think it was going to work, you know, I trust the farmers. I mean, like, I don't think it's going to work either. (laughs) You know, because they've got that, that sort of knowledge. So absolutely. I think that those are two different kinds of, of knowledge and we should, as farmers, we're better having both of them. A hundred percent. I was just about to say, because like the agronomists, although they might sometimes be trying to pitch some new agey thing that might not work out, Right. The reason North America's corn yields are double that of South America is because the farmers listen to the agronomists in a lot of the cases, and they can implement this new stuff like soil testing. So they don't have to use too much fertilizer. Whether Old school, they just dumped a shit ton of fertilizer on the field. They'd over-fertilize, and that would actually reduce the yield. Now they're doing soil testing and applying specific amounts of specific fertilizers, and they're actually increasing the yields. And sort decrease. of part of it. But I mean, the farmers in good land in certainly Mexico and in Central America. Um, There's less corn farming in South America in general, but um, you know, they, they follow those practices. One of the reasons that the average yields are so much lower is there's so much more peasant production on really marginal lands. That's non say not a lot of arable land, right? Yeah. It's non-irrigated and there's only one harvest per year. And, you know, you're comparing that to massively irrigated and fertilized fields. So the, the yield differences are going to be really profound. Um, yeah, we had that I, place I called the Great Plains. There's both kinds of knowledge are really helpful. I mean, farmer's knowledge, and that's literally what I used to do is try to broker between farmers 
and and agronomists and crop scientists and try to sort of like help you know mitigate in some cases these sort of challenging situations between them and to try to understand like where that was because they both have good ideas and they both need to sort of be on the same page if these projects are going to work well um, far too often scientists come in and they're like, this is a project that we've designed back in our university somewhere, and we think it's just going to be perfect, and all you guys got to do is exactly what we tell you to do, and the people have their sort of other ideas about it, and they're, you know, they, they sort of don't understand that, so... Um, anyways, I'm going drifting further. No, I think it's important because there's anthropological aspects of it that are not addressed often by the scientists who are yeah. just trying to implement science. What you dealt with, I think, and saw firsthand is even if they came in with this really nice plan and said, hey, we're going to do this and it, they could promise we'll triple your yield. A lot of these people are going to be skeptical. And then there's like religious and cultural things like, yeah. hey, we yeah. grew this food for a long time. This was my grandma's thing that she passed down to my mom and now she passed it down to me. And now you're telling me that some person from another country is going to come in and tell me what to grow or how to yeah. grow it. It's a, uh, it, there, it's, there are. It's even more profound than that. Like, you know, everybody helps each other with what they call their milpa, which is their domestic production of like rice or sorry, corn and beans and squash primarily. Um, and so everybody will help each other and they do all this collaborative labor and stuff. And there are some people that do like tomatoes from there's a big um, development program that brought in greenhouses and how people set up tomatoes and nobody helps each other with the tomatoes. And if you want workers, I worked with the guys that were doing a tomato greenhouse and they needed to hire people um, to do that. Like it changed, everybody thought of the tomatoes differently. It's like, yeah, but that's not their food. So like, if they need help to work on that, we're gonna like deal with this in a money exchange sort of situation as opposed to just showing up to help on their, their milpa. So um, when everybody's growing milpa, like the whole community's working together all the time. And when everybody's growing tomatoes in greenhouses, everybody's growing their own tomatoes in their own greenhouses. And when they need help, they're, they're paying to, to bring in workers. I mean, it just changes the entire sort of context of the community. Yeah, Anyways, but now we're really vitro, getting farther and farther from what we're supposed yeah, to be talking about. Most like in vitro and in lab, they, they find out a lot of things and they go bring it to the field and it doesn't work like it does in the yeah. lab at all. So yeah, in vivo is so helpful for that kind of thing. Yeah. I think it's a to pivot back to last week, last prisoners project and advocating for cannabis rights. Wouldn't it be awesome if you at your local community garden, everybody could be tending to that cannabis plant, you know, just openly out in uh, the best sunny patch in oh your city. The you know, everybody could go and patch. The problem would be too many chefs in the kitchen, right? You get a bunch of home growers in there and now everybody's I'm going to defoliate it. I'm Schwaz and I'm yeah. fucking leave. And then somebody's like, no, leave all the leaves. And like, oh man, it'd be like this experiment, but in your community down the street, because you know, you, you, you have, have to balkanize the community cannabis garden. Yeah. I got a quick <laughs> question. Wait, Martin, are you flipping out? You got a right Spartan over there? What? What? I was asking the Spartan's tripping out. He hasn't been here. How you doing, kid? I <laughs> yeah, I think he was listening in great and deep, pensive thoughts. You're muted. Are you talking about me? Yeah, yeah you. Uh, I think I have a bad connection. Bad connection because it keeps popping out back and forth. Uh, okay. Oh, okay. I think there was I something see. going on because usually, you know, yeah. Yeah, let me ask sorry you. to interrupt. I, everybody, everybody's been saying pretty much my thoughts. I, I, don't, I haven't had any extra added thoughts here. I don't know. Oh, well, I appreciate. I, I, well, I'm glad to hear it. But yeah, if you have anything, 
Thanks for Tao for keeping us kind of um, synchronized. I was stuck because he was like, yeah, just there. I like when Spartan chimes in all the time. <laughs> Are you comfortable <laughs> describing your change of scenery? And uh, maybe why you're coming to, at us from a different locale today? Yeah, my uh, girlfriend, she's a dog groomer. And by holding on to the clippers that are vibrating, it's given her carpal tunnel over the years. I see. And one hand has gotten so bad that it would, well, she couldn't even work. So she just had surgery this week. So I'm here being her extra hand until this one <laughs> gets working again. So uh, I am live from uh, her garden that she started. This is her second grow, I think. So well, I hope she gets better quick, Spartan. Yeah, me too, man. She actually is getting pretty much better. I brought my RSO. That's helping a lot, <laughs> as you could be expected. And I actually made some RSO out of uh, some hemp, some straight CBD RSO. brought that too. So I've been uh, actually having her take more of So her, her dose of THC, I think, is a 0.3 on the 0.3 grams for a THC RSO. But I was going up to a 0.5 grams on the cbd side of things and uh, we tried a 0.5 with no with 0.5 cbd with no thc and uh, that still was pretty effective so that's exciting development because um, that's just cb i like a cbd as like a, a, a shotgun blast to inflammation right so uh and i figure right after surgery that's that's when you want that so uh i um uh, trying to get away from even thc because that is a blood thinner and with surgeries you have incisions and with incisions you just don't want them to bleed you don't want to have you want things to bleed exactly like the surgeons are expecting <laughs> yeah CBD, CBD is good for before and after tattoos shout out to uh, eagles tats on instagram or eagle gardens he's got lots of tattoos and he said he just takes doses of cbd beforehand and it not only decreases the amount of felt pain but he said uh, he bleeds less and he heals more quickly so that's just his experience since he started before and after doing it because he used to not do it. And he's got, he's blasted. I mean, he has tattoos all up and down his legs and all over his body. So I, I would take his word for it as somebody who has no tattoos at all, but it's a uh, good information to have. And we're definitely happy to have you. Do you want to shout out their Instagram to, uh, we oh, just yeah, they're already shouting out in chat right now. Anything grows, anything grows. It's all one word on Instagram. She's awesome. I follow her page uh, and yeah, I can see the tent in the background and her grow light shining on your face from the side. Yeah, shout out to Blue Kiss Gardens. She's here actually right now upstairs. Uh, otherwise, anything grows would probably be sitting right next to me, but they're both upstairs uh, visiting right now. So that's kind of cool. We have this whole community connection going on all at once here. So question for the panel. Um, should I go through that other paper? I was talking about before, or should we wait for the next session? We can go quicker through this one potentially, or we can just wait till next time because we only have like 30 minutes left. Maybe we'll try and squeeze it in, but I just wanted to say thank you for 5,000 subscribers. I know I mentioned it a few weeks ago uh, and you guys came through. We hit that 5K mark and we've stayed above it for a while now. So thank you all for supporting the show. And uh, Matthew, you could share that paper and we'll uh, see how much we could get through this week because I think next week I want to do a chat Q&A and maybe highlight some gardens. We had a couple people reach out that wanted to show off their gardens tonight, but we just got so deep into the great conversation that wasn't going to happen today. So maybe next week. Definitely next week. Sounds good. Yeah, definitely next week. I would like that. So 
I also looked through this paper. This is called uh, Identification and Mapping of Major Effect Flowering Time Loci, Autoflower 1, an Early One in Cannabis Sativa. Uh, basically, the one-sentence um, sort of summary is that uh, they're looking for genes that are important for um, sensitivity to light or I guess you should say the dark period, this go to period, but basically how much light you're getting. So, you know, auto flowers and, you know, photo period sensitive uh, varieties. Um, here in the abstract, these highlighted parts I've put are that in this work, the locus responsible for the auto flower trait. So in other words, the like section of genes, essentially I'm oversimplifying it, uh, responsible for the auto flower trait, auto flower one, as well as a major effect flowering time locus, early one, were mapped using what's called bulk segregate analysis, which I won't get into. Also detailed are the flowering responses of diverse cultivars grown in continuous light and the result of crossing two photoperiod insensitive cultivars of differing pedigree. And I have that part highlighted as well. Um, there's a bunch of parts here that we don't have to get into all those details. Um, essentially, there are different genetic pathways, of course. Um, in a lot of plants, this is conserved. It says here uh, in the introduction that um, you know, the conserved nature of flowering induction may ease the discovery of relevant genes in extant germplasm, which is essentially means that because so many flowering plants use the same kind of basically pathways to sort of induce flowering for those that, that have that response, um, because we've done this with a lot of other plants, we have we've learned a lot about that. This will probably this could make it a little bit easier for us to figure out um, in cannabis, which makes sense. Fuck phylos. Uh-huh. Uh huh. They do reference it here. Yeah, they they were using and they have a patent apparently on the where you just were. Yeah. Uh yeah. That's kind Is of the left hand side. Okay. That's kind of the oh, whole. Higher. That's the whole cherry on the cake there for the whole controversy with phylos is they yeah higher up the whole cannabis community's fucking DNA to figure out a way to capture right there yeah here yeah. a patent covering molecular markers and biotechnological manipulation of genes responsible for autoflower is held by phylos biosciences in addition to commercial high cannabinoid autoflower cultivars several grain cultivars such as panola which I see all the time in research have been referred to as autoflowering in literature. Yeah, so they mentioned that here. They also mentioned it in this here, this um, this table here, I think. Oh, no, not this table. It is... Well, I didn't mean to get you off track, but yeah. Oh, like no, yeah. Know. Oh, I mean, I understand that. <laughs> um, okay, well, again, I'll just skip to the results here. Autoflower 1 photoperiod insensitivity is a recessive Mendelian trait. That is something a lot of people suggested and they investigated that. And I guess they are saying here that it is two populations segregating for photoperiod insensitivity were planted under non-inductive long day conditions. So 16 hours of light, eight hours of dark day say here. Um, the two populations are this one called GVAH201080 and TJCBG which I'm not familiar with either. Um, they say in the GVAH population, 28 out of 88 plants flowered, which is 31.8%. And in the TJCBG population, 24 out of 88 plants flowered, which is 27.3%. These data are not significantly different from 25% of the plants flowering 
consistent with an with a recessive allele. At a single locus, we are designating as autoflower one. And they go on to talk about homozygosity and other sorts of stuff. Um, anyone have any comments about this result? No, other than it's good to have a suspicion reinforced by a finding, you know what I mean? I was kind of always suspicious that's obviously got to be kind of a recessive trait because it's not very common. I always no, felt I like it could be more complicated, but I thought, you know, it's interesting, yeah. certainly. I, I don't understand why well, they haven't adopted period. Sorry, Doc. Yeah, it's because it's well, because it makes sense to me because think about this in nature. It's like there's a recessive trait. It's not going to persist in an environment like a, a traditional environment that's well suited to grow for a photo period because the traditional photo periods will compete those plants, shade them out and kill them. So it kind of dies off anyway, but it's recessive straight in a, in a place as you approach the poles where you have where a photo period is more of uh, an issue. Those recessive traits are the only ones that are going to survive and reproduce. Right. Also, I feel like I feel like there's a relationship between like um, you know places where you might have a more extreme variance, you know, so closer to the poles and rather not closer to the equator. I feel like weather patterns are a lot different too, and in a lot of ways that can be a you know sort of a a signal of seasonal change. But that could just be my north, my northern hemispherical bias because there are other seasons outside of, you know, that kind of thing like dry seasons and wet seasons. Cold rain and snow kill plants pretty pretty good though, especially pretty good. late in flower. Yeah. Like the Manitoba uh, autoflower was one of the earliest non-Russian autoflowers that I'm aware of, and people thought that it was like all Russian related, but there are some Canadian as well. So it's like a good built-in way to can to persist everywhere in the world, even. Say there's a fucking lava, you know, something that's unpredictable, like a lava flow or something like that. Maybe an autoflower is the only thing that could flower fast enough to, pers- to persist that year and keep the, the genes going, you know, something like that. It's I don't like- think evolution would select for that, though, because it's not consistent enough. Like the um, stuff that Matthew shared a paper a while back about, like Chinese hemp, where they looked at the different um, parallels and it's certain parallels, like you were saying earlier, the higher though where they get lots of light or whatever, uh, where certain plants might not finish because the weather or the amount of light. Um, but what I'm saying is not that it's selected for that. I'm saying the whole unpredictability of the weather keeps it from being bred out completely. But oh, yeah. The way that could survive is the, the, the random one that was the, the recessive at the time. But that the would be very resilient. Well, we would expect this trait to exist near universal status, like in the northern polar regions. Um, there'd be a fairly limited hybridization zone. And it would be, we wouldn't expect to see the, this trait in high frequency at all in areas where the plant would, would be benef- benefited by having a photo period. Um, so it makes sense that it's a, a recessive because the hybrids in, in that case will not express the trait of the recessive. Um, and that's really the, the biggest difference between it being dominant or not. You know, if it was a, a heterozygotic individual, um, if it's a recessive trait, then it's not expressed. If it's a, a dominant trait, then it would be expressed. So in that hybrid zone, we wouldn't have auto flowering plants. 
You're exactly right. And this has been described by Daz Mephisto and Mephisto's genetics. And it's also been described by uh, Genome Automatics, uh, formerly uh, Full Duplex. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's still Full Duplex. He was formerly Mandalorian. You mean Gnome Automatics? Yeah, well, they. I guess it's Genome is the, oh. the way that Eric Robichaud was saying. It's kind of like a play on it's spelled like Gnome, but Eric was saying it's uh-huh. Genome because it's like the genes of the plant, whatever. Um, anyway. But that all aside, the main reason I brought all of that up was to get the, to people that everybody knows that is gnome. I think they're gonna have to go with gnome. I think it's clever, but yeah, I think but it's I like, like that though. Clever. I actually like that because gnome means uh, short. Uh, was it intelligence? Is it something like I that? I think it's just short people. Well, here's the thing that I wanted to well, bring up Greek with the, word in the these Greeks autoflower pronounce the G. The autoflower oh, readers have described the first generation of an auto cross to a photo period. They have zero autoflowers. So that to me right there says, okay, that's a recessive oh, thing because really they start tough. to see them at F2 and then they pick the F2s that autoflower to breed with to make the F3s. And by F3, they can start to see 75, 80%, oh, maybe even 100%, depending on what they crossed it to. But if by F4, they keep selecting the autoflowering one, they'll have pretty much 100%. That's why you see a lot of F4, F5, F6s in the autoflower, especially the femme side of things. I know we yeah, got a lot of. You would have to go back to to F five F six in order to to really be sure that you were going to have hundred percent autoflowers if you had just crossed it with a a scoto or photo period plant. Or you could just go to for those who are kind of mapped out. That's true, I suppose. Yeah. For those who are curious to know more about this kind of thing, this phenomenon with plants and animals is often called a a ring species where you've got like an extreme, like a mountain and a field. I've talked about this before, but for those who aren't familiar, you might have something kind of in an intermediary space between like a field or a forest and a mountain, this region. And so um, stuff like this happens all the time. And uh, yeah, it definitely has an influence. Um, I'll just do this part here, this mapping of autoflower one. Say here, the significant region, uh, this is for people who are into genomics and stuff that might not even be relevant here. I'm just going to bypass that. Effective autoflower one genotype on agronomic performance. 96 individuals of GVA H201080 grown in the 2021 flowering time field trial were genotyped at autoflower one. There was a significant effect on the allelic group on flowering date, height, and biomass with heterozygotes being intermediate with respect to flowering date, height, and wet biomass, which is a reference in figure two, which I guess I could go to. Dr. Coco, what does that mean? Which part are you <laughs> asking about, Matthew? Not to, be, uh, not to put you on the spot. Oh, um, so the, the significant effect of uh, autoflower one on the allelic group, or, or I'm sorry, on the, on the flowering date height and biomass, and and the, also this this aspect about heterozygotes being intermediate with respect to these qualities. I think it's saying that they did some genetic sampling on the field, essentially. And they're seeing that some of them have more heterozygosity. And within that population, there's a certain yield. I can't remember if he said it was heavier or something like that. He said intermediate. So probably somewhere in the middle. I'd imagine that the non-heterozygotes, because they're like an F1 or something, they'll have a lot of variation, like a super high yielding and then a super low yielding and then stuff that's kind of in between, perhaps. But that's my speculation just based on what I heard. 
And yeah, I want to say that it's basically that um, that's kind of why I was asking for confirmation because I'm not totally sure with the way they phrase this, but I think that, yeah, like you say, that, um, you know, th this, this locus, you know, this yeah. autoflower one area is, um, you know, is responsible for influencing these factors, right? Makes sense. But yeah. So what I take that that paragraph or sentence that you're looking at. So they're looking at the heterozygotes that had one copy of the the allele, but not two. Um, and they're saying that they were intermediate in respect to flowering date. Under, so an early flower under period. no, but it's not. No. Okay. Under continuous light. Where does the paragraph go from that? Sorry, it doesn't go anywhere. Uh, you mean this part right here? Yeah, and wet biomass. Oh, figure two. References figure Sorry, two. References to figure two. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's talking about that the heterozygote, which is the WT slash autoflower one, right? That's in the middle. The yeah. autoflower one, autoflower one is homozygotic for the trait. And the WTWT is homozygotic to be scoto period or photo period. But they're talking about the, the, you know, the heterozygotic that's got one of each. Um, and they're saying that, you know, it, it's closer to the photo period in all of these, but it was somewhat intermediate between the purely photo periods and the purely auto flowers. I feel like it's really well represented here. I really appreciate you bringing that up. So like this numeric flowering date part. Yeah, yeah. you can absolutely see kind of the scale, like how it's much closer to the, the wild type than the. And, and this would be outdoors. Um, assuming that no grown long day length. Where, where was this grown? Oh, sorry. This was, I believe grown in a, um, well, in, in a situation where they control all? the light. What's that? I think they're controlling the light. I can uh, find out. I believe they mentioned it. Was it the same thing here with the 16L and 8 darkness? I'm not sure. That'd be 16 hours on and 8 hours dark, yeah. Yeah. Um, so are they, are they saying that the photo period plants eventually flowered under that lighting situation. Oh, it just took actually, some plants actually did do that. Um, funny enough, here in Table Three, and they they mention they mention it in other parts, but there were actually some plants that were supposed to have. Oh, you know, I have forgotten my train of thought, but I remember reading something related to what you just said about how some of them that were not expected to, oh yeah, it was this, um, yeah, this is the one that had sort of the intermediary here or one of the ones, um, I'll, I'll, this, I think this is umqua here. No, 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 uh, sorry about that. This is these two here. So, sorry, so this figure three, okay? You have A, you have B and you have C. So yeah. this is this is a photo period insensitive plant grown under long days and photographed 85 days after planting. So A is this piccolo, B is la creme, which is autoflower one, autoflower one, and C is la creme, autoflower one, autoflower one, with 
Piccolo as an F1. So interestingly, like C all those is... plants are 85 days old. This is another case of like, I'm like, do these people know how to grow plants? Yeah, that autoflower yeah, looks terrible. Like that looks like the world. worst case scenario autoflower. The bee the is like really this is why autos have a bad reputation. Oh, look at the root ball. They're in a tiny container. I mean, it's in a cell. It's in a planter cell. Yeah, they didn't yeah. give it any fucking space. No, they didn't. And I'm not sure that they actually mentioned um controlling for that like uh root boundedness. That's why they flowered, dude. They flowered they talk, the, the, yeah. They flowered because they're in such a small pot. That's my thought on it, at least. I think that well, the, also they don't have a whole lot of um oh no, keep going. I was just going to say the, the ones that were not um, showing double autoflower allele that we would expect to be sensitive to the light cycle change that would essentially stay in veg if you had them in a large enough pot. I don't think they would have flowered. Maybe they would be like a if they were outdoor, they might be an early flip, like where instead of waiting until it's almost never 1212 in nature. But yeah, you know. right. Matt, if you go back down, right underneath that one, it said that they were doing a three-year test in uh, Geneva, New York. What The graph underneath that one. Go down right there. Yeah, figure four here. It says density ridge plot of umpqua, which are not these, flowering right. time in the field over three years in Geneva, New York. That's right. So that so they must be doing different kind of experiments. With yeah. These, like, yeah. So that's in the that field, out. and that makes yeah, sense yeah. That, that the mixed one... Oh, wait, Maybe they're referencing what are, those, what are those? Those are different varieties. Um, which are different. Yeah, these are not this. That's right. Yeah, those are different varieties. This is that umpqua. Yeah, yeah. Which I which when I was reading through this paper, I didn't really get into this stuff because honestly it was a little bit um baffling. Oh, and perhaps there's a reason for that that didn't have to do with my intellectual capabilities. But um yeah. <laughs> Uh, so we have this discussion section we can get through really quickly. Um, so they say that Spartan's going in a couple minutes. So, oh, uh, so as best we, we can. Wanna... Okay. No, no, we've got a couple minutes, but uh, right. I think this is a perfect time to uh, hit the final discussion. Yeah. So um, this red part here looks interesting. So this here, the further work to identify the taxonomic origin of autoflower one is pertinent. Autoflower one is often described in gray literature. I guess they mean like social media posts and stuff like that as derived from Cam's Rurales, but the most recent in-depth genomic studies do not support this. I actually mentioned that already. Sorry. Um, wow. That's fucking a big one. That is kind of a big one. It's kind of a, it's kind of a big one to sort of mention here. Let's, let's do this last paragraph. Many cannabis cultivars produced during the rapid expansion of the cannabinoid industry were segregating for flowering time. There is a critical need in the industry to develop uniform and stable cultivars that represent a range of critical photo periods. Cultivars with known critical photo periods can be more effectively matched with the latitude of agricultural regions and environmental conditions in controlled environment cultivation. A better understanding of the genetic basis of flowering time in cannabis sativa, coupled with molecular tools to accelerate breeding and selection will enable the development of new uniform cultivars. That's pretty <laughs> obvious, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I agree. I think I this is a really exciting area of genetic research to understand, not just for autos too, but for photos and sort of what signals, um, you know, plants to, to do different things at different times during the, the flowering period. Flower earlier. And know that they need, they need right. non-scientists to grow the stuff. They need 
consultants yeah. that have been doing it for years that know different cultivars that know different flowering times to give them examples and ha- show them how it's done properly so that they can start conducting even more accurate science because we know some of the capabilities that they're obviously not hitting the potentials of just yet i would you just want to point out you shouldn't be oh, surprised yeah. that they say cannabis ruderalis might not be uh, a, a uh, part of the whatever yeah. species because yeah. they're saying that not even indica that it's a whole entire cannabis they're saying uh, it's category right. yeah recessive totally, gene it's not a separate thing at all but it's not, guys it's, the, it's the, it's just, they're saying now so yeah nobody it's continuous a, change in biology yeah. it's always continuous change and we're always just deciding arbitrarily to divide a line and say these two things are separate spe- subspecies or these two things are separate species I was a um, lot in insects and fungi. Yeah. And I mean, even in primates, I mean, it's a lot yeah. of this stuff is just not very cut and dry. Um, and, but with plants, if the only thing that's separating two populations of plants is one recessive allele being locked in at a hundred percent sort of fixed in, in one population and being at a much lower frequency in the other population, um, if that's the only difference sort of genetically that's significant between the populations, I think you have a really hard time saying that there's a subspecies there and that it, it's warranting, you know, a subspecies distinction because. Yeah, I agree with that. It's not very different. They mentioned here that um, uh, photoperiod sensitive high cannabinoid cultivars and modern European and Chinese fiber cultivars, I guess that they were looking at, did not flower under continuous light. Fiber cultivars have been selected for their ability to continue to grow vegetatively until late in the season, which maximizes the biomass yield. Makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, they want it to veg as long as possible because they're collecting it for the stock to make it fiber. But with that said, Spartan Grown, this is typically where we uh, kick it over to you to give your final thoughts and shout outs before you, I don't know if you're going to be on Michigan Bros Grow Show tonight, but uh, if not, or if you are, regardless, uh, final thoughts and shout out. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Jack. Uh, first, I wanted to say just uh, reading these uh, white papers and kind of ripping them apart is become, quickly becoming a new favorite pastime of mine. we got to do this more often. I agree. I like <laughs> this. Just to rip apart the way they grow these plants and the conclusions they come up with is hilarious. But I want, it reminds me of the same kind of... Uh, experience or feeling i had when i went up into lansing to talk to the state lawmakers you know just because people have these high positions or we give them these positions and hold them up high it doesn't mean they have the knowledge that a lot of us take as granted or, or maybe take as common knowledge it's not common knowledge and um so yeah you're gonna have to take it that with a grain of thought <laughs> grain of salt just like these uh these studies that we're looking at, just because you see a study, read more than just the title, read more than just the abstract, especially if it's something that doesn't sound right to you, it doesn't sound like it, or if it's contrary to the what is usually thought to be correct, and, and see if their methods are a little squirrely, like what we just kind of exposed to right here on the show. I thought this was a really eye-opening show for a lot. Hopefully it didn't lose people, and, and, and they sat through and, and really looked at this stuff, because that's I don't know. I may raise my eyebrows a couple of times. That's for sure. So thank you, Matthew. And thank you everybody else on the panel for discussing this. And thank you for chat. Um, I tried to stay in chat pretty, pretty much the whole show. I think I stayed up pretty good, but I know I, I can't keep my eyes on it 24 seven. So, but yeah, I will be on the bro show. So I'll see you guys in what oh, 10 minutes or so. 
on the Mr. Rose Road Show. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. Peace out, Spartan. Spartan. See you guys. Keep on growing. Always a pleasure, Spartan. And I totally agree. Whether it's a politician or a doctor or, you know, a scientist, sometimes it's important to share the knowledge that we have acquired, whether they accept it and take it and put it into research or not. At least we can try and share some of our perspective so that hopefully future research is a little bit more informed and as well done as possible because nobody's perfect. I mean, I I mentioned I killed off a few seedlings, even though I know exactly how to grow them. And uh, so these researchers are trying their best and they're trying to, you know, get some conclusions with the time and effort and money and research that they're putting in. And I'm thankful for it because when I was a kid, I never would have thought that so much of it's being done. I never would have thought that we'd be at the place that we're currently at. And I'm just happy to see us continue to keep moving forward. So it's an amazing time. And I'm going to pass it back to Matthew and see if you have any uh, final things that you want to touch on here with this paper. Yeah, I'll just do it really quickly here. Um, they also go on to mention that feral populations which apparently, according to them, are closely related to European fiber cultivars displayed male flowering, but not terminal female flowering, perhaps indicating some selective advantage to photoperiod insensitive male flowering outside of cultivation, which we kind of touched on in our conversations about uh, sort of fitness and whether that helps out the plant species uh, population or not. This may also reflect the ancestral genetics of the progenitors of these feral populations, but it's difficult to know the original provenance of their progenitors. And that's something I'd love to see more research on myself. Is there anything else about this paper that I really care about mentioning besides what we already said? Um, no, not really. Um, you know, we can go into questions and chat or, or Coco. You know what I was just thinking about these feral populations in the intermediate areas, autoflowers would most likely, males would make the pollen quicker pollinating the photoperiod plants that were maybe close in proximity. And I think that's pretty much what that last statement you said was, right? How the the males... uh... Uh, So it said that the... So these cultivars, the European fiber, displayed male flowering, but not terminal female flowering. So perhaps there's an advantage to produce the males... Yeah, photo period insensitive male flowering. Yeah. What that would say to me, Matthew, is um, like we talked about at the top of the show, the bolt, the stretch, right? If you get your male plants, they're more sensitive to flowering. They're going to bolt and start throwing pollen before the females have pistols ready to accept the pollen. So if you're growing for fiber and not for seed, I would think that maybe somehow they figured out to select for these really quick flowering males that kind of blow their pollen out before the females are even in flower so they can you know take them essentially and collect their you know fiber but then the females will bolt as well when they go into flower a little bit later on and you get a little bit more fiber out of that process as well because when they do start to be seeded as somebody who's recently started to make my own seeds um i will say i haven't noticed as much of a stretch and a lot of people will say if you pollinate super early um the plant dedicates basically its whole life to just producing those seeds versus like uh, an unpollinated sensi bud is going to produce just plump fat inflorescence that are not full of seeds. They're just resonated and uh, the beautiful smoke that we mostly all know and love in 2022. So interesting. Uh, this to mean, oh, I'm sorry, Jack, you done? No, I'm done. I'm done. Um, Would they know they were males though? 
Yeah, well, hold on. This indicating some selective advantage to, to photoperiod insensitive male flowering outside of cultivation. Outside I mean, of cultivation refers to like the wild species. And some advantage right. refers to an, a reproductive advantage to males in flower in being photo period insensitive um mm. so yeah basically i take this to mean like you want your males to be <laughs> spreading pollen for if you're a male and you want to successfully sort of pass your genetics on to the next generation you need to have your pollen you know hit a flowering female um and so it, it I guess what they're saying is it's better to not be sensitive to the photo period. Um, now, being sensitive to the photo period, if you were the sensitive the same way that the female plants were, then that's how you would successfully pollinate. Um, right. You almost want to win the lottery of like you're photo insensitive, but you your veg time is timed at the proper time that the females when they go into flower you're may if you were the male trying to get your dna to live on you'd want to be flowering just a little bit before that and all the way through the beginning of their process so you're right, the first. you would still want to be sensitive to it i, I wonder if it's because be... they're wind pollinated and perhaps maybe pollen production for them is like so voluminous that like not being synchronized uh is less important perhaps you know to, that's a good north, question it, the plants, even autoflowers, would probably start growing later in uh, in a calendar year due to the frost that has to thaw out, right? So maybe they would, uh, the insensitive photo period males would end up making pollen when, by the time the, the photo periods are, females are starting to flower. Is that it, a it possibility? Be, yeah, it could uh, be any number of, of really small things. And I think they're just describing sort of the frequency of a gene in the population being somewhat higher than we would expect it to be. Um, therefore, you know, there must be some reason that it's kind of hanging around in those numbers. It's conferring some kind of advantage. Um, right, just because it's yeah. out in the wild and it's out. Yeah, we don't. And more commonly, yeah. But which is is interesting. I mean, that's one of the things with the dioecious plant like cannabis. You need to make sure that the the males and females are somewhat coordinated. Um, yeah. <laughs> otherwise, you'll you know, like have well, an extinction you know, event. I've read where even photo period males, once they start flowering, like in that first week, they'll shoot out some pollen uh, real quick and then continue to uh, grow more male flowers yeah. as a, like an emergency kind of just to make Backup. sure they get something out. And I it happened they're... to me out in the woods one time. And uh, yeah, it was very frustrating. I must say. <laughs> I'll say this. My males have been, maybe it's just the velvet punchline. They will flower roughly the same time as the females but as soon as they dump for like three or four days like no matter how hard i try to keep the plant alive it just wants to die off like even mm -hmm. if i'm watering it appropriately just like i would every other plant in the room after the I male dumps you, all of its pollen it's like fuck this i'm out like it's probably it more dies. shocked more shocked than the 12 and 12 like I, i'm thinking outdoors like outdoors is when i experienced that the males drop dump pollen like within a week of actually growing flower and then they stopped like i was saying well i killed them off right after that but then i went home and i read up on the stuff and i found some reference where it was saying how male pollens would drop pollen like as soon as they can just as an emergency response and then continue growing so right. 
that, that was outside they were talking about also sun grown yeah it, i mean in most species that sort of reproduce sexually like this the the males will be ready for reproduction across a longer period of time than the females will and they need to be sort of ready for the females when the females are ready yeah, like you mentioned if they were off time like if it was a group of male <laughs> autoflowers and they were all flowering a month before the females had any pistols then there'd be no seeds made so essentially the females would have to then pollinate themselves which uh does happen in nature more often than people give credit to a lot of people get really angry at breeders who send out seeds that end up having hermes in them but oftentimes if you go to land race or in nature that's where a lot of hermy plants actually oh. that's how they survive you know what you reminded me of something know if it was in oh you know what i don't think i spelled that correctly there's supposed to be an r there thank you all right i just want to touch on this part here since here the prevalence of segregating populations marketed as cultivars suggests that some perhaps unscrupulous or novice breeders use parents that were heterozygous at autoflower one leading to photoperiod insensitive plants in the seed population population segregating with approximately one-fourth photoperiod sensitive individuals such as TJ's CBG suggests production by a cross between two parents, heterozygous for autoflower one, possibly the self-pollination of a plant heterozygous for autoflower one. As detailed in table two, several commercially marketed cultivar populations from multiple sources were segregating for autoflower one, which may have resulted in poor cultivar performance for growers due to variation in photoperiod sensitivity. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> I agree. So like unintended Hermes are making inconsistent seed results, essentially, is what I'm taking from this? Yeah, basically. That is an interesting point, and it wouldn't surprise me one bit looking at how the history of cannabis seed banks have gone through doing things. And even my own experience, like if you, I know people that try to work with more than one male and just knowing how far and wide pollen wants to spread. If you have more than one male, it's going to be pretty much impossible, in my opinion, uh, to say that you can verifiably say every single seed from this plant or that plant came from this male or that male, because pollen sticks to your skin. It sticks to your clothes. It sticks to your hair. It sticks to yeah. your pets and everything. And it, it can transfer from one to another. And I know people do tents with carbon filters and you know negative pressure and sealed environments, but I still definitely am a little bit skeptical sometimes. And you see the people that will pop like a, a strain that they think it's going to be one way. And then it turns out being like a lot like another strain from that breeder. And maybe it yeah. was mixed in there. So And that's every right. seed can have a different pollen donor. That's something I don't think everybody sort of recognizes on a, on a mother. So yeah, a, a mother like that, that's going to be producing these seeds, right? It's each individual seed gets pollinated with a grain of pollen. Um, they can come from all different fathers, you know, and be all different seeds. So just yeah. because seeds come off the same plant doesn't mean they're going to be sort of the same. I mean, it just, I mean, and, and that's for more than just like you and your sister aren't the same, right? Even though you came from the same parents, um, like your, your sister might not even have the same dad in this case, right? right? Like that it's going to be. Or a clone over the mom. The same. It could self itself. Plan. So it could be like, even That's if there's one male and one female, it, you can't even, it's difficult to verify that there's not some S1s in there because if the female got stressed at some point, self-pollinates, let's say 90% of it comes from the male. Those seeds are 90%, you know, regular seeds or whatever, but then 10% right. of them are now fem seeds that are S1s. 
So, and it'd be really tough to, you know, yeah. parse that out when it happens. But with that said, we've only got one minute left. So I'm going to start passing it around the horn to give our final thoughts and shout outs, starting with Matthew, who did a great heavy bit of lifting with all the great science to share with us today. So thank you, Matthew, for that. Thanks. I appreciate it. I'm really glad to hear the Spartan. Other people really liked it. Um, of course, I think it's better to be a little bit more uh, balanced. But um, besides that, if you're curious about this kind of cool stuff, you can find very much the same research on my Instagram at SyncAngel, Twitter at SyncAngel, and at my YouTube channel, Xenthanol, which I was commenting in the comments with. And for professional inquiries, please reach out to me at xenthanol.com for consulting about IPM and pest mitigation. Thank you again. And next up, Dr. MJ. Hey, I had a lot of fun. Thank you, Matthew. I will try to do my homework better. I've been busy and I saw the, he posted these articles. And I was like, oh, I'm supposed to do homework before the show. <laughs> oh, and, no then, and then I, I kind of forgot, but I try to do a good job sort of on the fly and definitely. Enjoyed. It really helped. It really helped. <laughs> Thanks. Definitely enjoyed um, going through it and, and sort of you know, doing some live analysis of, of the articles. Um, I've been, I got some, let me sort of get to my wrap ups here. I got some YouTube projects coming out. I just published a little trailer for a couple of videos that I'm working on. Um, and you can check that out. We are about to flip in the uh, plant training grow challenge. October 1st is, is flip day. So in a couple of weeks, I'll be able to do like a live demonstration of what a stretch looks like in real time, um, because that's all coming up here shortly. And um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thank you, Jack, for hosting. Thank you, Matthew, for bringing all the, the material today, the rest of the panel, um, everybody in the chat that shows up and keeps things interesting every week. Um, you know, much grower love, everyone. Thanks so much, Doc, for all you do in the community and the uh, bits of analysis on the thing. I think sometimes when you do it live, it's fun because we give pretty uh, genuine reactions and they're sometimes a little bit unfiltered. So I think exactly. like maybe we could be a little bit harsh or critical at times. We're just trying to be honest and give our initial thoughts and uh, reactions to the paper. And I'm sure some of us will go back and look at it some more and uh, maybe even reach out. I I'm going to send a link to the scientists out there and see if we get any response it'd be cool to have them on and, and talk about it, about it and i'd love to know more about you know how they actually went through the process getting the funding getting it done oh. and all that good stuff so but that said the american one last and certainly not least great to have you thank you jack yeah i was just gonna say that uh, i think it's actually better when we do it like on the on the live because it would just be like if someone else had opened it up for the first time but in any case um yeah, and I had an issue with uh, someone from Israel with a language, so I couldn't really talk to them. But, you know, uh, it would be interesting to have them on and uh, give them some of the stuff that we pointed out and see what they have to say about it. But other than that, I'm the American one on the YouTube and the American one underscore with underscore Akeens on the IG. It's always great to be here. Great to see everyone in chat. And uh, keep growing. Keep being a suspect of everything you hear, learn, or are told. And uh, yeah, keep going. Peace out, everyone. Peace out, indeed. Toda uh, Rabah to any Hebrew speakers out there. My Hebrew is not very good, but uh, you know, Shabbat Shalom, all that good stuff. There's great people over there. I know they're uh, in a territory that has a lot of struggle and issues, but it's cool to see science coming out of there and uh, some positivity to be able to focus on that. 
if you do have uh, English speakers who would like to come on and talk about that kind of stuff, I'd love to talk to you. So we're going to, like I said, send, send this link and hopefully a kind email and maybe get the attention of some of the people over there. And who knows, maybe we'll have some future communications with them. Next week, we're going to do chat Q&A and we're going to have a couple people show off their gardens if they're still up to it. Uh, this week they offered and I'm sorry, we already had some stuff lined up, so it didn't work out quite like that. But if you're looking for me, you can find me at Jack Greenstock on Cannabuzz as well as Instagram. I'm Jack underscore Greenstock on Twitter. And that's also my backup account on Instagram. If you want to email me, jackgreenstock47 at gmail.com. And lastly, if you want a copy of the book, uh, 50 Strains of Green, it's on 50strains.com. I'm still working on 50 Strains of Purple. Not quite ready yet, but I am putting in a lot of work. Also busy, like Doc said. So uh, trying as much as I can to get the work in when I can and do other things when they need to be done. But with that said, I got to go plant some seeds, everybody. So I got some new life on the way, getting back on my practice, trying to keep things uh, you know, alive this time. So... Get back on the grind, growing some good cannabis again. Uh, peace and love, everybody. Thank you all for listening and uh, look forward to seeing you all next week. Grow or love, everyone. <laughs>